welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome back or welcome to another Growth Equation Podcast. This week, we've got an awesome special guest, Judd Brewer, who is the author of the new book, Unwinding Anxiety and a renowned psychiatrist and neuroscientist. I've read both of his books. They're excellent. In this conversation, we're going to dive into anxiety, mindfulness, all of that good stuff, and we'll also end with my favorite topic, running. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we jump into that, just a reminder that if you're looking to support us, we do not do ads on this podcast. We don't try and sell supplements or things like that. That is an intentional decision. Why? Because most of the time we get asked to sell things that we don't believe in. So instead, what we, we have is you can support us via Patreon. We're giving away all sorts of cool stuff. We've got monthly book clubs available, including with authors like Cal Newport, who is coming on to talk and speak with the book club, and also Judd Brewer might as well. We're going to ask him. So we also have other great things like signed copies of our, our books and other cool giveaways, and you actually get to listen to this podcast early if you're a Patreon subscriber. So if you want to check that out, head over to patreon.com slash the growth equation the links will also be in the show notes on the growtheq.com so check those things out so without further ado let's jump into this amazing conversation with judd brewer judd great to see you how are you doing i'm good it's good to see you as well you are in the midst of um, the sprint stage of launching a book. Uh, <laughs> advice that we got from our good friend and longtime author, Ryan, uh, was that launching a book is like running a sprint as hard as you can and then finding yourself on the start line of a marathon. <laughs> that is a great image. Wow. Is that why I'm feeling so out of breath and real <laughs> feeling like I'm just at the beginning? Okay. That's good to know. So it, you know, I say that as a joke, but I, I think it's a great point to start at. So I know you very well. You have been a wonderful mentor and meditation teacher to me over, I think like the past two to three years. And I am so impressed because you practice what you preach and you are very equanimous, you are calm, you are collected, you are deliberate. If anything in the world can disrupt that, it is either having a child or launching a book. So <laughs> how, how are you practicing in your own kind of um, mindfulness practice in your own way, given that you are in the thick of it where you're getting reviews on Amazon and bestseller lists are coming out. And having been there, I'm positive that your publisher and publicist is giving you sales updates and all these kind of um, external noisy things are hitting you. And the product is something you care deeply about. It's your work. How are you holding up? <laughs> well, let's, let's say it's a, um, my wife uh, taught me this term called the FGO, the frickin' growth opportunity. You can uh, imagine that that has R-rated versions as well. And, you know, this is really an opportunity to bow to a, a kind of adversity as a teacher, not that my adversity, you know, there's, there's real adversity in the world, but, you know, we all feel our own adversity in the ways that we feel it. And so uh, lots of, lots of kind of, I, I say this truthfully, fun challenge. It's like, okay, <laughs> here it comes. And I think some of it has been, you know, I've, I've really taken to, you know, moment by moment practice to see, you know, when am I getting caught up in something? When, how quickly can I notice that so that I'm not kind of holding on to things longer than I need to, which is, Often because they're, you know, it's easier to see how painful it is to hold on to things. It, it, the letting go happen, a process can happen relatively quickly. 
yeah, I have to say, you know, it's, I remember uh, just like a day or two ago, I got, <laughs> yeah, I got a one star Amazon review because somebody's book had been misprinted, you know, where they were angry at the publisher. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, that's not my fault. <laughs> You didn't say anything about the content of the book. Our favorite, our favorite review on peak performance was um, a one star review because they ordered it next day prime and it took four days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so, so it's, I, I looked at that and it was, you know, I, I sent it along to my publisher saying, you know, Hey guys, probably helpful to, you know, figure out stuff on your end. And, uh, and then it's like, well, there's nothing I can do about this. Uh, so here it is. And can I feel the sensations? Can I notice whenever I, my brain is going there again and just see how quickly I can catch it. So it's kind of like a game, you know, it's like, how quickly can I notice that thought? Because then it, you know, my brain reminds itself, oh, you know, it's, it's a one-star review, nothing you can do about it. And it's not even, you know, negative towards your book. Uh, and so that noticing game has been, it's kind of been game on lately because that's just one example uh, of it. You know, another is, um, and I, I dedicate the book to Amazon Addict. I dedicate this book to Amazon Addict because I got so caught up in a three-star review for The Craving Mind <laughs> that I had I'd written, well, it's the full story is in the acknowledgments if, if somebody cares to read it. But the short story is, you know, somebody had said, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Why isn't this more um, step-by-step, you know, The Craving Mind? Why is it more step-by-step? It was very kind. And then why isn't this more step-by-step? And oh, by the way, here's a link if you want to read The Craving Mind for free. <laughs> you, know, you don't even have to buy it. Uh, and, you know, so I was caught up in that for way too long when I got that review. And then of course it went to the top and then now it stays, it will be at the top review forever. It's like, it's got like 10 times the number of helpfuls than any other review on Amazon. So it's going to be there. If anybody wants to look, they can read the full review. And so it's like that, you know, that type of thing has been great practice for noticing. So for example, I, you know, (laughs) my practice is to go on Amazon once a day now to check to check reviews because I know how unhelpful it is <laughs> to check multiple times a day. And that's, you know, that's actually the, the pragmatic piece that I highlight even in this, in, you know, in the, in the new book to how I can, you know, I'm trying to practice my own preaching, so to speak, in terms of how to work with this stuff. I I, I love that. I love that you just came out and admitted, um, that you still struggle with this stuff and that it's really difficult. And I think that's such a powerful message to the rest of us um, who haven't maybe practiced meditation or gone on retreats or have this mindfulness awareness. I I think like having that like self-compassion and kindness is such a valuable lesson, right? especially in this world. I mean, I, I think it's, it's difficult sometimes for people to understand, but launching a book is, is nuts and crazy. So what I'd like, and maybe from a selfish standpoint, it's let's dig down into some of those boundaries you created. You know, you just said, I only check once a day. Like what else are you doing to keep yourself in that kind of noticing space versus that judgment? And in the moment, because we've been there in the moment when that urge is so strong to just check, like let's use the four step process or, you know, three plus one step process of your work and let's see exactly how you're applying it. And for people that haven't launched a book, this is no different than if you are a little bit too caught up in social media and you want to check your retweets or likes or email. If you work in an organization and email is the thing that tells you that you matter. So it's a very human experience. I think it is hyperpower because there's this book with your name on it. Yeah. So maybe I, I love this because I think it's, you know, it's like, okay, I, nobody's asked me to walk through the process that I write in the book. And so I love this because this is it, you know, and I'm living it right now. So this is, <laughs> this is live. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying <laughs> tongue in cheek, 
you know, I have this condition. Um, it's called the human condition, <laughs> you know, and this is something we all share. And often I'll, I'll say that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek with my patients in my clinic when, you know, they say, oh, but I felt, you know, I felt anxious, you know, for like three hours. And I say, oh, well, you might have this condition, you know, it's called the, it's called the human condition just to remind them like, it's okay to get anxious. That's what we do as humans. You know, it's built off of this, this whole survival mechanism. So just, I'll give a 30 second background and then I'll, I'll walk you through how I'm, I'm walking that walk or trying to walk that walk myself. It's very humbling, I'll say. Uh, so this is, you know, this human condition, it's about survival, right? Eat and not get eaten. And the one thing that I found helpful as I was doing research for this book was to think about you know, what happened to our survival brain to the, why we get anxious, because that anxiety is probably the biggest thing that I'm noticing come up for me uh, during this book launch. So, you know, we've had this old survival brain. We've talked about this before, you know, three things, trigger behavior results. If you, you know, you see food, you eat the food, your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain. So you remember where it is. So it's basically helping us remember things, right? Remember where the food is, remember where the danger is. On top of this is layered this new part of the brain called the neocortex, literally new brain. It helps us survive in a different way through thinking and planning. And part of this has to do with uncertainty, okay? And I think this is important probably for all of us because there's been a ton of uncertainty over the last year, right? So if you think of our stomach rumbling to signal that we need food and we go get the food, you can think of our brain rumbling in the same way because information is food for our brain. Okay. So uncertainty says, go get information. Okay. Or, in, you know, see if this is safe or not. So that's the basic premise, you know, and the idea is we go get information then it helps us plan for the future. We survive. The problem is when there is uncertainty that is unresolvable, or if there's something that we have no control over, you can think, you know, the definition of anxiety is this feeling of nervousness or worry about something with an uncertain outcome, right? I don't know how well my book is going to do. <laughs> so there's an uncertain outcome. Well, I can go out there and I can yell and scream at my publisher and be like, make sure they take that, make sure you print the books properly, you know, make sure they take down those reviews that are meant for you and not for me. You know, I can kick and scream and that's not going to do anything. Uh, I mean, to whatever degree they can do something, they will, I'm sure, make sure, uh, but I can kick and scream and that's just a waste of energy. And so the big thing here, this, this big aha moment for me was that, you know, uncertainty, this, when my brain starts spinning out of control with all the what if scenarios, like, oh, what if I only get one star reviews? What if, you know, what if that, that uncertainty spins into anxiety and actually makes my thinking and planning brain go offline. It does the opposite of what my brain was trying to do, which is survive. Okay. So, I think of it, so the book is laid out as this three-step process and step, you know, part zero is just to give background and, you know, all this stuff and help people see how, you know, we can be addicted to anything. So I, I use anxiety as the thread for the book, but it's really about helping people see how to change related habits like overeating, drinking, all this, and then any habit. So it's not just, uh, you know, somebody that's just struggling with anxiety. So for me, step one is just to map out the habit loops around, you know, the things that, uh, that I'm trying to do to make that, to resolve that uncertainty, to make it be un more certain. Right. And so for example, Amazon, you know, okay. My trigger is that I think about, you know, Oh no, I wake up in the morning and I think, Oh, what, <laughs> you know, what reviews am I going to get on Amazon today? And so my brain says, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the fog of sleep and my brain's like, well, just pull out your phone and you will know and, you know, you can resolve that uncertainty right away. And so there's the, I can notice the behavior. Okay. So urge to check Amazon. And then as I do that, and I did this a lot with my previous book and it's been much easier to let go with this one, I, I can check what am I getting from this, right? So what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? That's step one. 
and anybody can do this. I write a lot about, so give some good patient examples from my clinic in the book on how anybody can do this. And in fact, we created a habit mapper. Uh, anybody can go just mapmyhabit.com, free PDF download. Anybody can do this. Okay. So that's step one. So for me, step one was mapping out my Amazon loops. <laughs> step two is really the critical piece. And my lab's done a bunch of research on this over the last couple of years. And so I highlight the pragmatic step in the book and also give a little bit of the background if folks want to understand the science behind this. But it's basically tapping into our brain's reward system, right? And so our brains, the only way our brains will change habits, any behavior, is through updating the reward value, basically how rewarding a behavior is. So I actually highlight, uh, there's a chapter on anti-anxiety habits or anti-anxiety strategies that don't work. And I list three of them. And then I list mindfulness after that, because the, the typical process is, you know, just don't do it. Have, have you all seen, you know, Bob Newhart, you know, the comedian from the seventies. Yeah. So he had this skit uh, called just stop it. I don't know if you've seen it. It's famous. It's hilarious. Every time I watch it, I, I watch the whole thing again. Cause it's fabulous. It's five minute skit. Basically this woman walks into a therapist's office. She says, I have this problem. And he leans over his desk and he says, just stop it. You know, she's like this. So it would be great if as a addiction psychiatrist, my patients, you know, walk in the door with, um, they want to quit smoking. I can say, just stop smoking, you know, just stop overeating, just stop worrying. It'd be a one visit, uh, you know, one, one visit, visit to the psychiatry, one session, and then they'd be done. So that's the approach that the world takes with so many things, whether it's weight loss or trying to get more fit, you know, this and that. And we can get into the nuances of like, where is it helpful to bring energy and grit to something versus where is it just getting in our way? So, you know, that if I just tried to force myself not to go on Amazon, it would be a very painful process. And I see you shaking your head. Yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work. So here for me, and I think this is, this is really how our brains work. It's not about just stopping it. It's about stepping back and asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? And what that does is it updates the reward value in our brain. It helps our brain see very, very clearly just how rewarding a behavior is. And there's a bunch of math behind this, doesn't matter. But the long story short is, if I pay attention to the results of my behavior, then that will help me determine whether it's a behavior I want to keep doing, or I want to stop, or I want to moderate, right? For food, for example, we all have to eat. But there's this pleasure plateau where, you know, eating a certain amount uh, is, you know, helps fill our stomach, tastes good. And then after that, it starts leveling off and then going down the other side of the hill where we're just overstuffing ourselves. And so, for example, my lab did a study with uh, we have this Eat Right Now app where we could actually embed tools to measure reward value. And within 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention to overeating, they actually change the behavior. Okay. So I can say I have certainly overconsumed checking Amazon <laughs> for my for my reviews. And I and now I can just recall that. Oh, what was it like when I spent all day checking Amazon reviews and checking my um, you know, and seeing what I'm getting from this? I'm wasting time and I'm just getting more anxious. So I've become pretty disenchanted with that process. So what I do now. Well, and the one liner on how anybody can do this is just ask yourself, what am I getting from this? And we can dive into that more if you all want. Um, but the one liner on that helps me really step back and ask, well, what, am, what will I get if I go check Amazon again? Well, it's going to disconnect me from you know my relationships. I'm not going to get my work done. All these negative consequences that don't, they're, they're much worse than me constantly checking. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, they're much worse than if I don't check, you know, if I just check it once a day. So it's helpful to check once a day to see, hey, you know, point something out to my publisher. But beyond that, it's really, you know, it gets in the way. So I can become disenchanted with that process. And all I have to do is recall that. And then my, my brain can make the decision. Oh, not so helpful. And it's much easier not to do it. The third step for me, and this is for anybody is I call it the BBO, bringing in the bigger, better offer. So if my brain sees that checking Amazon is not rewarding, then it says, okay, give me something better. Because otherwise I'm just going to sit here and be like, well, that sucks to check Amazon, but you know, twiddle my thumbs. What else am I going to do? So then it's about 
just recalling the things that are more rewarding. And here's where I love mindfulness in the sense that the attitude of curiosity itself can be that bigger, better offer. So not only in those moments that I have this urge to check Amazon, can I notice that, ask myself what I'm getting from that, but I can also use that as a moment to bow to it as a teacher and say, oh, here's craving. How can I learn something about my own mental process in the process of working with this, with this urge to check Amazon. And so I can dive in and get curious. Oh, what's my body feel like? Where, you know, where do I feel that? Um, what are the sensations? What are the thoughts going through my mind? And it's an opportunity to really learn more about myself because, you know, we learn more from, from adversity. In my opinion, I learn more from adversity than from when things are going well. And so it's like, wow, this isn't going to come along every day. So not only can I make the best of it, but it's like, wow, oh, this is there. Here's a great opportunity to learn. And that, oh, wow, actually moves me from like a fixed mindset of, oh, no, bad Amazon review to, oh, <laughs> here's an Amazon review. You know, what, you know, what, what do we need to do about this? It moves me into growth mindset. And also, wow, what can I learn about my own mind? And, and in that sense, it's not only humbling, but that humility is just this, you know, provides this rich fertilizer for growth. Oh, and so I always want to be learning, learning about myself. You know, if I thought I was totally, you know, let's just say that I've met some people who truly believed that they were enlightened, you know, they, they were referred to me for my lab to study. And I'll just say that I, well, <laughs> I'm, you know, sometimes when we are convinced that we're truly enlightened, that's when we're really deluding ourselves. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so I'll speak from my own experience. You know, if I ever, if I ever come to you guys and be like, Hey, I'm enlightened. That's when you can, you can give me a, 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 a poke in the ribs and be like, you know, Hey, Judd, really? <laughs> what about Amazon? So I'll, I'll stop there. That, so that's, that's basically my story of going through my own three-step process. There, there is so much to unpack there. Um, I think where I like to start is maybe in the sense of some of the things that you mentioned both there and in the book that don't work. And in particular, I think for our audience, this exploration of why willpower isn't, you know, the answer would be helpful. Great. This is a debate, you know, that's probably been raging at least since antiquity. You know, there's a relief on the Parthenon with this horse and a rider. And the idea is that the horse is passions and the rider's reason. You all, you all probably know this. And the idea is, well, how do we use reason to tame our passions? And, you know, the age of enlightenment, you know, I think therefore I am all this stuff has really given a lot of credence to, well, just use, you know, use willpower, cognitive control, whatever. Uh, reason makes sense. It's helpful to reason through things, yet it is part of the neocortex. This is the youngest and weakest part of our brain. So ironically, this is the part of the brain, first part of the brain that goes offline when we're stressed or anxious. You know, this is where hangry comes from. This is where in the addiction field, halt comes from. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are moments where people are more likely to relapse. And there's really not a whole lot of neuroscience suggesting that willpower has much muscle. It's more myth than muscle. And uh, so the, the idea here is, well, if willpower is a thing, and some philosophers and some neuroscientists even will say, well, that's, it's, it's more a heuristic than, than truth, but let's, let's give it some, let's just say, okay, willpower is a thing. It gets depleted, whatever. We do know that prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're stressed. That is true. So if we can't trust that, you know, what can we trust? So I think it's more like, oh, this is a great idea. I wish I had more of it. You know, if anything, it's more, it's a great marketing tool for a weight loss program. So if the weight loss program says, make sure you have more calories out than calories in, and the formula is correct. You know, I learned that formula in medical school and somebody can't meet their calorie restriction for the day. 
then the program can say, it's not our fault. It's your fault. You just need to sign up for another year <laughs> and you need to go find some willpower. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Um, one other that I want to bring up of these myths or misconceptions, and then I'll turn it over to you, Brad, is um, in your book, you mentioned the Yerkes-Dodson law. Mm, yes. Right? And um, I want to bring this up because I know we have a lot of athletes who listen to this podcast. And it is like ingrained in us this <laughs> this inverted you of arousal and performance. Yeah. So um, can you address or talk about that? I would be happy to. This, is, this was a fascinating journey of discovery for me because... I never quite understood this idea, you know, if you, you know, you, and, and the, a lot of people say it's, it's, you have to be anxious to perform well. Right. So I think you're even being more accurate in the way it was originally described, which is arousal. So this story started in 1908 with these two researchers, Yerkes and Dodson, they were studying Japanese dancing mice. I kid you not Japanese dancing mice. And they were doing something, I don't remember what the, you know, they were, sh I think they were shocking them, you know, some, some type of like, you know, mouse uh, arousal thing. They're like, oh, if we shock a mouse, it's going to, it's not going to lay around and sleep, right? <laughs> well, who would sleep if they're shocked? So if they do a little shock, it doesn't do as well on, on whatever the maze was or whatever their performance measure was. If they shock at a, a moderate amount, it did better. And then if they shocked it a lot, it did worse, right? And <laughs> I you know, tongue in cheek, I say, well, how do you know, you know, they're not just stunned or like, ow, that really hurt, you know, and that slows down their performance. So that, that aside, what they found was, you know, if you shock them a median amount, they did the best on this thing. So this paper was ignored basically for 50 years. It was cited something like four times. And in the fifties, this famous psychologist, Hans Selye, he gave a talk, right? And without any evidence, he suggested that arousal was synonymous uh, with, with, you know, he said, oh, maybe anxiety is like this, where, you know, a little bit of a moderate amount of anxiety, you do better on it, on, on tasks and things like that. So he suggested this in a talk. One of his graduates, former graduate students, two years later, published a paper basically claiming that the Yerkes-Dodson law was true. And because he, uh, he did a study where he would hold rats heads underwater. And then he, he found that if he held, held their head underwater too long, that they performed poorly on a, on a task. Again, how do you account for them gasping for air <laughs> before they start swimming? I don't know. Uh, so he said he used the terms anxiety and arousal interchangeably and called the Yerkes-Dodson rule a law. And then this, this basically got psychologized into existence. So I think that... Plus this idea that people want to, they want to be like, well, there's some good thing to my anxiety, so I shouldn't work on it. Because <laughs> if I don't have anxiety, I'm, I'm not going to perform well. So if you look at this, again, the Yerkes Dodson uh, paper was only, I think it was cited 10 times up to like 1990. And then it was cited something like 100 times. And in the next 10 years, and then over the next 10 years, from I think 2000 to 2010, it was cited over a, ten, a, a thousand times. And the only thing different there, in my opinion, is the internet, right? And so somebody can write some a blog on the internet and say, oh, it's the Yerkes-Dodson law. This is why anxiety is good for, for, for performance. And then people say, oh, yeah, yeah, my anxiety, it's good. It's, it's good. I, I should do that. And anybody that's had anxiety then can, you know, kind of hold that as a badge and be like, well, I need this to perform well. So if you look at the literature, and there's a great review from 2015, I forget the author's name, but I, I cite him in my book, where he basically talked about this whole history as this Yerkes-Dodson law unfolded. It's something like, you know, from myth, to, uh, from law to folklore, I think is the title. Because the if you look at the science, it's like 10 times the number of papers uh, that show that anxiety decreases performance than any that suggests that it increases, that middle ground increases performance. And if you look at the neuroscience, prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're anxious. And so my best sense for how this works is, it goes back to my PhD years. My mentor, Lou Muglia, used to say, 
you know, is it true and true and is it related or unrelated? So he'd say, make sure it's not true, true and unrelated. So uh, I could be anxious, true. I could perform well, true, but it doesn't mean my anxiety caused me to perform well. And if you look at the evidence, anxiety decreases, you know, we can't think, we can't plan, we get, you know, we freeze up. Uh, so if you look at that, it's, there's no causal connection. And then if you ask the corollary, well, what is an example of optimal performance, right? And it's flow, right? When we are in the farthest reaches from anxiety, right? Flow is so selfless. There's no self to be anxious. So if you look at those two pieces, anxiety does not have a causal connection with performance. In fact, anxiety decreases performance. And then you look at the epitome of performance flow. There's no evidence to suggest that this yerkes dodson law is true for anxiety. Now, if you look at arousal, I'm sure Japanese dancing mice that are sleeping versus like awake are going to, you know, there's going to be a difference in performance and same for humans, right? So we do have to have some level of arousal, but arousal does not equal anxiety. And if you, my lab actually did a study uh, recently, we haven't published this yet, where we looked at a bunch of different mental states and we looked to see which states felt more closed and which states felt more open. Anxiety, frustration, all these feel closed. Uh, curiosity, kindness, connection, basically flow. We didn't test flow specifically, but it's on that spectrum of open. Flow is like the far end of that spectrum. The So all of these things close us down, like anxiety closes us down. It puts us in fixed mindset. We can't actually think and plan. We can't perform well. And it feels worse than being curious, for example, or being in our growth mindset. And so there's really, there's really nothing supporting <laughs> that anxiety is actually going to be helpful. Love it. So... All right. There is, again, so much good stuff to unpack here. And I think this is a really good opportunity to get pretty deep. Uh, all right. So here we go. Pay attention, mapping your trigger behavior rewards, asking yourself what I'm getting from this. Um, I think most people can do a pretty good job of that. I think the rubber meets the road in between what am I getting from this and then not doing it. And what I'm hearing you say is that willpower doesn't work. You need that bigger, better offer. And perhaps the ultimate bigger, better offer is something that puts you into a flow state. Because like you said, like, you know, the defining element of flow is there is no ego. And if there is no ego, you have nothing to worry about. Um, I love how in certain lineages of Buddhism, uh, nirvana and orgasm get like put together because like the self just totally disappears. When you're having sex, you lose yourself, you feel good. When you're performing at your best as an athlete, there's no self, you feel good. When you're a writer and you're in the groove, there's no self, there's nothing to be anxious about. So how do you bring more flow to the day-to-day -day activities of your life? I remember once, Judd, I was talking to you in a session and you told me that I forgot exactly what it was. I think it was like something about I can be in flow when I scoop my cat's litter. And I'm like, no, you can't. And you're like, well, not every time, but sometimes. Um, so I'm a little bit all over the place, but I guess I want to, and flow might not be the only answer, but I want to focus on the, what am I getting from this to the bigger, better offer? Because I think there's still like a compulsion, especially around checking behaviors, whether it's Twitter, whether it's your review, whether it's your email, you know, it doesn't make you feel good. You know, it's a waste of time but there's still like this strong compulsion to do it. So in that moment, I think is where so many people, certainly that's where I fell. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the compulsion piece. And then, yes, let's talk about, I think the flow and kind of moving in that direction is pragmatic, you know? And so the first thing I would say is the, the more we try to get into flow, the farther we will, you know, the more it will run away from us. We can't, as, as probably everybody listening knows, you know, the more we try to force flow, the, the less we get into it. And that really hints at this whole thing, the trying, you know, and this, I love the, uh, was it the interaction between Luke Skywalker and Yoda in the empire strikes back when Luke is trying to levitate the boxes and, you know, he's whining about it. And Yoda says, you know, do or do not, there is no try. And I think what he's not going to channel Yoda here, but my interpretation of that 
is the more we try to do anything, the harder it will get because the trying is us getting in our own way. That is an optional component. That's why he says, do or do not, there is no try. He's basically saying it's selfless. This isn't about you doing something. It's simply about finding the conditions for the boxes to levitate through the force. So here, the pragmatic piece starts with that compulsion. What does that compulsion feel like, right? Well, let me ask you, does it feel open or closed? Yeah, it's very contracted, narrow, yeah, yeah. tight. It feels closed and contracted. And I would say so any of, yeah. yes, so closed. So any of these things, trying, uh, anxiety, frustration, right? If something's not working, it's like we just, you know, step on the gas and put it harder, you know? That's where we get closed down and, and contracted. That contraction moves us in the opposite direction of flow and more toward getting all, you know, our engine overheating where we can't, you know, we, we panic is the far end, you know, but where we're just totally caught up, we're frustrated, we're angry, we're judging ourselves, we're, you know, or, or if something's really at a deadline, we start to panic. Oh no, what am I going to do? Brain is not working optimally in those conditions. So focusing in on that feeling of closeness, and it starts with this second step. It's got, you know, once we've mapped this out, we've got to really spend some time seeing what we're getting because otherwise our brain is just going to keep doing it thinking, oh, well, it didn't work this time, but it'll work next time. And, you know, the rest of our life will be doing that. When we see that one, it feels bad, that contracted quality makes it harder to perform. And two, that it's not moving us in the right direction. That's when we become disenchanted. That's, we can't skip over that step, right? We cannot do that. Once we see that really clearly, then we can start to bring in these bigger, better offers. So anything that can help us open up moves us in the direction of flow because we can't be contracted and expanded at the same time. So if we're contracted down in frustration, you know, this isn't working, whatever, we can get curious. Oh, what does frustration feel like? And turn toward our own direct experience in that moment. Doesn't matter what the task is at that moment, because we're the one getting in our own way. Oh, what does frustration feel like? And if we are truly curious, like, oh, what can I learn from this? We're already opening. We're already moving in the direction of flow. So I think of this as not, you know, achieving flow, because that's a goal. But it's it's this constant journey of, you know, am I contracted or am I expanded? So let's bring it to the cat litter, right? I have to change the cat litter. It's true. And so I could go, oh, I have to change the cat litter and I get contracted around it. You know, oh, I could be checking my Amazon reviews instead of, you know, to check, changing the cat litter. So it's like, oh, cat litter. I could go, oh, here's the cat litter. Can I be at my optimal self while I'm changing the cat litter? Because it's a lot more fun to be changing the cat litter in an open, expanded state than to be like, oh, cat litter, you know, well, I love my having cats. So <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and it can be more than fine. I can yeah. practice moving in the direction of flow, just changing the cat litter. So this, this brings up two things that um, in my working with you as a teacher that I remember more than anything, or at least day to day. The first is I would often talk to Judd for 20, 25 minutes about things I'd been experiencing in my meditation practice, and Judd would just tell me to keep paying attention. And to me, that's shorthand for the really feeling what you're getting out of something. And a big part of the message in the book is kind of replacing the notion of willpower with just paying attention. Because if you pay close enough attention, your mind-body system will rewire on its own because, as you mentioned, it's, it's not going to want the, the bad or the things that make it feel contracted. The second thing, which is one of the most powerful things that anyone's ever told me. So first off, like, thank you, Judd. And I bring this up all the time. It's something I share with my coaching clients. Um, and I think that you'll be able to connect it to this bigger, better offer and why it's so challenging. So uh, for listeners, I was having an experience in, in meditation where I would have these moments where it almost felt like I was truly achieving, you know, the goal, if there is such a thing as a goal of kind of just like losing self and feeling connected and really feeling open and free. And those moments would often be accompanied by a shot of anxiety. 
So I'd have that moment, I'd kind of realize I'd be in that moment, and then there'd just be this strong anxiety, like really from head to toe. And I shared this with Judd, and Judd, I don't know if you remember this, but you told me, and you kind of laughed, and you said, oh, that's just your ego afraid to die. Can you say more about what you meant by that and how something that sounds maybe woo or spiritual actually has like these pretty, A, practical notions, and then B, like neuroscientific support as well? Yeah. So let's talk about the neuroscience first, and then we'll get into the practical piece. There's a network of brain regions called the Default Mode Network. I write about this a lot in the uh, Craving Mind book and a little bit in how it relates to anxiety and habits in, in the Unwinding Anxiety book. And the idea is there's this self-referential brain network that is constantly firing. It is probably the network that fires more consistently than any other network. It was serendipitously discovered, you know, back in 2000, early 2000s. Details aren't important. But basically, you know, my lab's done a bunch of research looking at expert meditators and how their brains are different. And we found that their brains get really quiet. They do not overactivate like the rest of us. And especially when they're meditating, their, their brains are, that network's much quieter. And when we've done some neurophenomenologic studies where we could link up brain activity with people's subjective experience, we even had Anderson Cooper come in and we, he was doing a show uh, for 60 minutes where we hooked him up to our neurofeedback device. And we said, think of a time when you're anxious, this network fired off. It would actually went off the charts a week, beyond what we could measure. <laughs> and then, uh, and then we asked him to meditate and, and it got really quiet. So there's a great example of seeing the difference. You know, when we're caught up in something versus when we're letting go. So you can think of this related to the ego. So this network gets activated when we're basically when we're thinking about ourselves and we spend most of our times, most of our time either thinking about the past or the future, right? Because our brain is trying to take the past, project into the future so we can plan. Yet the twist there is we get caught up in you know, we regret the past, we worry about the future. That that wasn't the plan for the brain, I don't think. <laughs> that caught up quality. But that caught up quality is a marker of ego. Because when we feel contracted, when we're caught up in something, whether a craving or caught up in worrying, so worry activates, you know, the more we worry, the more this network gets activated. That says, here I am, right? Because I'm I'm contracted. It lets me know that I I exist as an ego, and then there's this boundary between me and the rest of the world. The rest of the world's out there. Okay. So the idea here is when we start to let go of that, that boundary starts to soften, right? This is flow is the example of that. When you lose that boundary between self and other, that's flow. You, we can't, you can't be anxious because there's nobody there to be anxious when we're in flow. So there's a bunch of brain you know, science that suggests that this network is involved in, you know, self-referential processing and that that contracted quality is what um, brings up the, uh, that, that sense of self around, you know, the experiential sense of self. There's a conceptual self, not a problem because the conceptual self helps us kind of navigate the world. Like, oh, I wake up in the morning. It's helpful to remember that I am Judd, <laughs> you know, and do all those things. But Judd does not have to be caught up in, oh, I have to go check my Amazon reviews or get caught up in anxiety or whatever. So it's really this experiential sense of self that uh, is probably seated in, in a, or at least uh, is marked by uh, no, this uh, network, in particular, the posterior cingulate cortex. So pragmatically, this gets back to that feeling of contraction versus expansion. So when I'm contracted, uh, it's, I'm likely activating my default mode network and reminding my brain, oh yeah, there's a self. And when I get expanded, then that's that boundary um, it starts to dissolve. The f especially when we start to notice this boundary and this process more clearly, it can be uh, frightening, right? Moving into any new territory of experience can be, can freak us out. And so it's, you know, when, for example, you're, you know, you're Brad, your example where you're like, oh, I was just, those boundaries were very, very relaxed. And then the ego comes in and says, whoa, what, what the hell was that? Was that danger? You know, in the survival brain saying, was that dangerous or not? The more, and I'd be curious to hear your experience, the more we live in that territory and see, oh, there's no saber-toothed tiger coming after us, 
the less the ego uh, comes in and says, hey, that you know, it has a, a case to make to say that's a problem. And then this becomes, we become familiar with that space. And then it, it is less likely to come up and, uh, and kind of jolt us out of it. I don't know what your experience was like or has been like. Yeah, I think that you you are right. The more regularly that I practice in informal sitting meditation, the more open I tend to be, probably because again, my my brain or I guess my my self-referential brain is realizing that hey, nothing bad is going to happen. I think, you know, so whether it is touching your Buddha nature in meditation, whether it is flow in a performance context, falling in love. I mean, all of these things that are so hard for people, it's really about letting go of your ego. And I'm curious why, if it feels so good, which it does, why is it so hard and how much of that is just cultural? Because I and I know we're going a little bit veering off, we'll bring it back to the book, but I think this is fascinating because it seems to me, and I hadn't thought of it like this, that so much in the culture is about I, me, mine, scarcity. And are we raising our kids wrong? Like, should we be programmed? It, I guess what I'm saying is it shouldn't be so hard to experience this thing that feels great. Yet so many people, I think all of us at times, or at least me and Steve at times included, struggle to let go. Yet when we let go, we're free. And whether it's in the most controlled atmosphere of meditation, whether it's choking in performance whether it is not sacrificing for your partner and feeling like an asshole later, it's all about ego. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think if I remember correctly, around Shakespearean times, the, the notion of excitement became admixed with happiness. Okay, before then, and I don't know, historically, I'm not a historian, but there was there's a lot of talk about eudaimonia, which was this basically feeling of peace, of ease, of openness, right? And that was often described, I think, in, I don't know, Greek, Greek time, you know, in ancient Greece and in Roman times, something like that, where folks were really focusing on this eudaimonic aspect of experience, which is basically peace, joy, probably kindness, you know, connection. And then that, you know, somewhere around Shakespearean times, people started to admix excitement, uh, with with happiness. And then that got culturally, it, my sense is that culturally that started uh, becoming the dominant paradigm. It was kind of like a virus, you know, that's very contagious because it taps into the survival mechanisms that you're talking about, scarcity, and it promotes consumatory behavior. And so here in in cultures that are based on consumption, it is a great marketing tool to help point out to people all the things that they're lacking that they should have, right? This is where the whole pain point marketing piece came from. You know, you can't sell somebody a pain reliever unless they're in pain. And if, if they're kind of in pain, you can really point out to them how much pain they really are in, or you can try to help them think that they're in pain, right? Oh, you need this new car. You need these clothes. You need this health house, you need these, you know, this lifestyle to be happy. And so the excitement piece is really the dominant paradigm to the point where that's what a lot of people mistake for happiness. And I say mistake on purpose because excitement is not happiness. You know, if you if you talk to any of my patients with addictions, they're they're driven uh, and that excitement is not is not happiness. So it's really, I think people just don't know the greater happiness that comes from joy and, you know, this eudaimonic aspect of experience. So this is fascinating. Um, while you're going over the history, which I, which I love, it just reminded me from doing the research Brad and I did for the passion paradox, as you saw a similar change at a similar time period of the word passion. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was right in that Shakespearean time where it just kind of went from this <laughs> um, nebulous descriptor of things. Well, it started in, not to give the whole history, but started obviously with Jesus and passion and went from suffering. And then around Shakespearean times, it goes from suffering to this 
kind of modern indication of passion, you know, this, this emotional experience that we should seek and all those things. So it's just something about that period. is just interesting. This, this like change in like vocabulary that then translates to change and like our experience. Yeah. And communal living started to also dissipate at that time, right? There was much more Hmm. of like individualism. So, I mean, neither here nor there, but it'd be an interesting project, like to try to identify like at what point, like are, are these both true and unrelated as your mentor said, or is all this stuff related? (laughs) And was there this turning point where like excitement, passion, individual living and kind of ego was, um, became the predominant culture. Sorry, Steve. I, I just wanted to add that in there too. Yeah. Well, if you if you look at that scientifically, we do know even now, you know, whether that's what kind of became the the dominant paradigm. You know, who knows why that became the case? But that contracted quality that links up self with excitement, and so the more we, the more that gets perpetuated societally the more that's going to stick and be harder to get out of. So it goes back to your question: Why not more? you know, joy, connection, kindness, it's there. And it's actually there for the taking because it is more rewarding. It's just that we haven't trained ourselves to look for it as a society. That's fascinating. Um, so coming back to the book a little bit, I one thing that I really wanted you to touch on, because I think it's uh, very pertinent right now, is this distinction between mindfulness and meditation Mm. because they're so interconnected right now and mindfulness you know and meditation are having a nice moment in in our kind of popular society is i wonder if you could unpack that a little bit i'd be happy to and i think i even have a, a diagram in the book about this because this is an important question so i think of meditation being a small circle within a larger circle of mindfulness and so if you think of you know, one way to think about meditation is it helps us understand our minds, right? Helps us see these mental processes. In Buddhism, they talk about cause and effect. You've got to be able to see cause and effect. That's karma, right? So meditation helps us remove all the distractions so that we can really look inwardly. And I found it, you know, I've even gone a number of month-long meditation retreats so I could really carefully look for a long time at these patterns of my mind. So meditation is within this larger circle, which is, well, we don't have to be sitting on a cushion to start to notice the patterns of our mind. You know, I can map out a mental habit loop with a patient in my clinic using a piece of paper. So that is a moment of recollection of seeing, oh, what's the mental pattern of my mind? We can map this out in real time. You know, if I have an urge to check Amazon, I can check to see what's that mental pattern of my mind. So there I'm practicing mindfulness. I'm being aware. I'm not, I'm non-judgmental. And ideally I'm curious, oh, you know, what's happening? What's my mind doing right now? So I think of that as something we can do at any moment that we can be aware. And then meditation helps, you know, it's a formal way to remove some of the distractions to help uh, dive into that process, even on a more granular level. Thanks. And then one other thing I wanted to add on to add on to that is is you touch and I haven't seen this anywhere else. Uh, maybe it is, but I haven't come across it. Is you kind of create this distinction on your personality, like personal type of mindfulness, like mm-hmm. this individual notion of what kind of works best for you. Which, from a coaching aspect, like seeing this like individualization of something that gets like lumped together is fascinating. So I wonder if you could, you know, briefly touch on that. Yeah. So there was a commentary, a fifth century commentary on the ancient Buddhist teachings called the path of purification. And the one liner on that is that they were basically trying to do personalized medicine where they were matching meditation practices with individual personality types. And when we looked at this, I worked with a poly scholar and some other researchers we found that there was basically it lines up in buckets that are very similar to uh, basically fight, flight, freeze, right? So some of us are more likely to approach situations. Some are more likely to kind of avoid them or judge them. And others kind of, you know, they go with the flow is one way we think of this. So, and this is neither, not one is not better than another. It just tends to be what we, you know, 
what we're, we, we tend to do, whether it's probably a combination of genes and what we've learned from our environment. So here, if we know those types, and I have a 13-item quiz in the book that people can actually take to kind of get their predominant type and their secondary type, they can just be on the lookout to see what's their habitual way of reacting to the world. And then they can use that to become aware of it and start to work with those patterns. And there are even meditation practices that can be geared toward those patterns. So for example, I'm like 97% of the avoid or the aversive type where I'm more likely to judge and do all of this. So the prescribed practice for me is loving kindness because it is the hardest practice for somebody like me to do. I'd rather judge people than to be kind to them, including myself, you know, judge myself than to be kind to myself. So when I can see, oh, this is a really challenging piece, when I'm ready for it, and it's not the one that they'd recommend you start with, right? Start with some basic practice and then, you know, advance to this. When I was ready for it, I could then start practicing loving kindness and actually write about how hard it was for me to start practicing loving kindness in the book and how I started bringing it in in different ways. Like when I was riding my bicycle to the hospital during residency training, I started doing these short moments of loving kindness many times. And I found that that was a good way for me to practice it. Judd. Uh, you know, so Steve and I, when when we do these podcasts, um, because we can't be in the same room and we don't really feel each other's energy. Long story short, sometimes we'll we'll type or we'll text each other, kind of. All right, you're up next. You're up next. And I just texted Steve. Jesus, Judd is so smart. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that just to butter you up, but I want it to be like. Um, and smart is as smart does. So you, I. You know, we could argue, but you are very intellectually robust. I'm curious how how do you spend your time now, and are you someone that sets aside like periods of an hour, two hours, three hours a day to just read and think? Do you tend to do it in bursts? Um, because I think anyone listening, and, and part of what drew me to you after reading The Craving Mind is you have such a deep and broad understanding of science, but then also of like history and spiritual practice. And you can really see across these diverse fields. And I think most people that try to do that can do it at like 60%, but you get pretty dang close to like 95% in my opinion. So what, like, how does the brain of Judd Brewer go so deep and broad? So I'm checking to see if there's ego there. So thank you for, uh, for that prompt and be like, <laughs> yeah, so, I really just this is all just a trick question to challenge yeah. Judd to, to, to have his ego come through and say, gotcha, See, you're pumped. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so here, it's really about, I think, my North Star right now, and I don't think this is going to change, but who knows, uh, is really, you know, what's most rewarding for me is... Uh, basically being of service to the world and learn. And part of that is learning how the world and our, and the mind, including my own mind works. And so with that North star of like, how can I be of service this I've been, and I think I've had this since I was a kid, I've been just been really curious about stuff. I want to know how things work. And so that curiosity and I write a lot about how we can foster our own curiosity in the book. I think of it as a superpower that I've just been able to, fortunately that curiosity is a really strong driving force. And as that it's like a magnetic pull of, of help, you know, understanding my own mind, helping my patients, helping, you know, basically trying to help be of help uh, in terms of decreasing suffering, that curiosity is really aligned with that where I'm, I basically follow that curiosity to see like what needs to be done now. So I don't say, okay, I'm going to block off two hours to study this. And then I'm going to block off two hours to do that. That's really, that feels too artificial for me to, uh, to organize, uh, organize isn't the right word uh, to, I, I can't think of the word, but it's just um, too planned, Right life is not about my life is not about just planning everything because life is constantly changing. It's about adapting with the constantly changing circumstances. And so sometimes I'm going to need to learn this, you know, I'm going to need to learn something philosophically to help understand my science. 
sometimes the science leads me to look into some philosophy to, you know, I'm seeing this observation. I need to understand theoretically why that might be the case and see if the theory lines up. And a lot of this is really organized around just this basic principle around, you know, this Buddhist idea of um, cause and effect, right? And what's causing suffering <laughs> and how, it, how can we actually help to alleviate that? Uh, I even wrote a paper, a scientific paper, almost you know, eight years ago now, where we, you know, I was curious, huh, do these Buddhist theories actually line up with modern day theories of psychology? And in fact, they do. And so it's like, oh, let me... I have a friend who's a poly scholar, let's do this. And so I was just following that passion, you know? And then, so it's really just about letting that curiosity and that passion flow and not limiting myself saying, oh, don't do that now because that seems off base. Well, I don't know if it's off base until I test it. And if I keep my awareness going, I can know pretty quickly, oh yeah, that's not helpful. You know, go back in this direction. But if I don't move, I won't know. It's kind of like, I love this quote from the life of Pi, you know, uh, doubt as a philosophy for life is like uh, immobility as a means of transportation. And so if I'm constantly saying, oh, I shouldn't do that as compared to going, oh, I don't know if that's the right direction. If I go there and I'm paying attention, I'll know very quickly if it is the right direction or not. So as as we finish up here, Jed, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one question um, about running. Because Man, as Steve, I'm reading... you always got to do this. I'm bringing our <laughs> listeners along. We're talking about the ego waiting to die and love and flow. And Steve, the, the runner in Steve will always shine through. All right, go it, for it. it. You know, my life always comes back to running. And, you know, once our podcast that we did with Cal Newport, once we found out he ran in high school, and then somehow we started a Cal Newport, Dave Epstein, Gladwell Twitter thread on on running. Based on that, I just got to bring it because, you know, the runners are diehards. They want to know this this question, especially as they, they watch or read Judd's book. Is it popped out to me that you were a member of the Hash House Harriers, which probably means nothing to anybody except for if you're a running nerd. So can you you maybe, you know, give us the background on on joining that and your own running history really quickly? <laughs> so so I loved to run just in general. I remember in junior high school, I joined the cross country team wearing uh, high top basketball shoes because I couldn't afford regular running shoes. And, and I just, it felt like the world turned another color for me. I just loved it. And so <laughs> eventually got running shoes, you know, ran on the track and cross country teams in high school, just absolutely loved it. Uh, didn't want to, and was not good enough to run. You know, I went to Princeton Div one, you know, there are real runners that run on the teams there. So there, I still ran and I loved to run and I was a chemistry major. And during that uh, time, my thesis advisor, his name was Maitland Jones Jr. He had found, there, he, he was part of this group called the Hash House Harriers, where basically it's this quirky, goofy group of folks who, you know, they, they talk about it as um, drinkers with a running problem or something. I think that's one of the motives where basically somebody goes and takes flour you know, bread flour and marks a trail through neighborhoods, through woods, through, you know, all these things. And, and then it's kind of like a uh, hounds and the hare, you know, where we as the runners have to follow that scent. And so people are running in all different directions. They're screaming these things like on, on, if you're on the trail or checking, if you don't know, you know, if, if you're, you've, you've lost the trail and all this. So basically I joined this group based on my my professors, you know, um, saying, "Hey, you know, you try this out." And it was just so fun. It was just a great way to uh, have a different way of running, where I could, you know, I could get a great workout because, you know, you're running, you could run ten to fifteen miles, even though it's not in one direction. <laughs> but it was also a really fun thing to do with uh, community members, fellow students, and also get to run in all sorts of venues. <laughs> sometimes getting into trouble. You know, if we were running across a golf course and people were golfing, they would yell at us and things like that. But that was kind of part of the fun. You know, we tried to not do anything damaging, uh, but it was just part of the fun. 
<laughs> Love it. Thanks so much for sharing that. My running curiosity, and I, I guarantee our listeners uh, will love that, and it's now satisfied. Okay, Brad, back to the serious stuff for you. <laughs> well, um, I my my only serious stuff left is really just to thank you for um, for coming on the show. We um, we've got a growth EQ book club that now is up to about 210, 215 members. And um, we would love to wrangle you back for another live discussion group um, with that book club if you're up for it, because um, we'll be reading Unwinding Anxiety. And even if you're not in the book club, you should read Unwinding Anxiety. But if you are in the book club, uh, we'll be reading it. We'll be discussing it on our book club message board. And then, um, yeah, hopefully we can wrangle Judd back because I could talk to you forever, man. Just geeking out. And now we know that you're also a runner. So you are like in the growth EQ club. <laughs> well, as the hash house would say on, on, I'm in, uh, I'd love to join you. <laughs> well, um, thanks so much, Judd. Uh, again, listeners, Judd's book is unwinding anxiety. We couldn't recommend it more. It is a super actionable and practical book. Um, there's definitely some theory in there, but it will really help you where the rubber meets the road. And for those of you that are interested in really nerding out on the theory, Judge's first book, A Craving Mind, is also excellent um, and really goes deep into the science and um, some of the ancient wisdom traditions behind the topics that we talked about. And um, we just got Judd to commit to joining us for the book club so if you are not a member of the book club and you want to learn more, go to www.patreon backslash the growth equation and you can sign up there. Um, and yeah, Judd, just super appreciative of you taking the time and thank you for writing such an excellent book that's going to help so many people. Thank you. This was, I really enjoyed this conversation and look forward to more. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.